Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Her Mountain History. I'm Grace. I'm Michelle. And this week we have a guest. Yeah. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hi. Introduce yourself. Oh, hi. I'm Chloe and I'm Grace and Michelle's friend. Yeah. Oh, different Chloe from last time. Though. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were warned that it might be a bit difficult because you're both called Chloe. So. Of course. But no. And Yorkshire accent. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so this week you chose a theme. I did. You want to do it's 18th century. Yeah, women in 18th century literature. Yeah. I picked this subject because if you studied 18th century literature or anything like around 18th century like writing, you'll find that it's just dominated by men. So I thought it would be an interesting topic to pick for women and their representation within the 18th century. Yeah. Did you do your dissertation on it? Or? No, I didn't. No, but oh. I, oh, I I've studied I've studied 18th century writing um, through uni. It was one of the things that I didn't really think I'd like mm-hmm. as much because when you when you a lot of people like even when you go back to like school and if you, if um, a teacher will pull out an old text and they tell you how old it was, you'd be like, oh my, it's it's nonsense. But then you actually when you get to uni, you know, you have to push yourself into into, into but like away from your comfort zone, mm-hmm. you start to realise that it's actually great and sometimes really funny and like there's a lot of stuff that you can also apply today and mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of wits and kind a lot of, of context in it as well. Really yeah. Gives you an insight. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. massively. And especially if you, I think for the 18th century, well, it, it pushed a bit because a lot of people say the long 18th century and a lot of people you don't really know where the 18th century starts and stops. Yeah. So. I think that's also interesting because there's a, there's so much. That's why there's like where where is where do you def, where is it like defined in that moment? Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like I know when I was researching for the woman I've done for this week, it was it was really difficult to find like what are you looking for in terms of 18th mm-hmm. century? Is it the year that their work was published, or is it the themes that it fits into? Is yeah. it how old they are? It's yeah. Well, when I studied 18th century, I found well, and. Like lecturers and stuff have, have spoke to me about it and they've said 18th century is, it kind of comes in like in like three separate waves and obviously there's like the restoration obviously it's in 1660 when the monarch was um put back into power mm-hmm. um and after Cromwell, that was after Cromwell yeah, so yeah. yeah it was Charles the second was restored to the throne there's kind of that period and then you get into like the mid kind of, kind of 1700s and then you get to like it's, it becomes quite witty and bawdy and there's a lot of satire and then you get to the end and you're going you're slowly kind of going into like the revolution mm-hmm. in 1792-ish well 89 when you get a lot of kind of like political you get like William Blake and stuff like that and then after that you go into the romantic period so it just depends in, yeah. in, in literature it's probably more easy to define but then in history maybe not yeah so yeah <laughs> so I feel like it's like you're a history student as well like, yeah I do yeah. history about it as well. yeah. <laughs> sorry just a, dis- obvious. Just, a dis- <laughs> just a disclaimer yeah yeah um so uh you said that you want us to go first. yeah yeah so, um, you I'm going first yeah. okay so I've got like a little one so yeah. I did because I thought for the name's sake I've gone from Maria Susanna Cooper Oh, I've never heard of her. So, same name. Mm. No one else have got this one? No. Brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, she was born in 1737 on August 20th in Norfolk to James Bransby James and uh, Anna Maria Paston. And she was the eldest daughter. There's not Wait. a lot of information on her. 
Is there a character called her in Heart? Is there? Mary Cooper? No, that's Mary Cooper. And it's all completely different. Oh, I mean the same name. I mean, like, Cooper is like, I think it's like the fifth most common name in England. The mini. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, Mary is also a very common name. Like Jesus' mother. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she, um, so there's not a lot of information about her growing up uh, until she kind of, she married Samuel Cooper, which is how she got the name, when she was 24. And he was a religious man, so he was appointed to rector in Yelverton. I did, I did this research quite a while ago and I did look at where all these places were and I've completely forgotten. But they remained in Shottlesham, I think it's pronounced. Is that in the UK? Yes, this is all okay. within the UK. She wrote children's books, and so originally she wrote children's books, but the actual publication information was completely lost because oh, yeah. uh, she published it through a company by or named John Newbury, but all the information is lost, like all the letters that were sent to organise it and the dates. What are the books? Still? I think the books might be. I'm not 100% sure. I think I might have like read a little bit of one because for like the English language A level mm-hmm. and like it's like child language acquisition. Yeah, and I I'm it sounds familiar and I don't know if it's from that or it was just something really similar. Was it good? Like I, I just remember an apple and a tree and a girl. Sounds inspiring. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so then we have obviously have like books that we have dates for. So uh, the first was Letters Between Amelia and Harriet. She wrote letters basically, like history novels, mm-hmm. and were very short. The first of which was published in 1762. And then her most favourite, uh, her most famous was called The Exemplary Mother, which were published in two volumes, again in the uh, 1700s. They were all published um, anonymously originally because mm-hmm. of obviously like discrimination from the area and then later when she up went like back to um like revise them or kind of go over them she then started signing her name in them but only like after they kind of had a bit of fame yeah she could see another section and then kind of yeah, decide, yeah. and then be then called to put her name on it yeah. so she had 10 children that's a lot wow 10 <laughs> no he had 20 sorry who bark Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah uh, three died in infancy. And there was a, a few, like, there isn't, like, a list of all of their children. There's just some that then went on to become famous. So, uh, Robert Bradbury Cooper uh, was born in 1762. Oh, my God, you're going to reveal your descendant. I really wish that's where this went. It doesn't. You know, it, you could be, though. I could. Because everyone's a 50th cousin. Yeah. You could just say it. <laughs> yeah, so I am, this is me telling you, I, I am I bet you're like descendant. the 13th cousin. The, the no way. I'm not, I don't, I don't know if that's, I guess, yeah. Oh, I'm going to guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then they also had Ashley Cooper, who's now Sir, but was Sir, but then we don't really know anything about where they were born, who was the oldest, or any of that, anything of the others. So they all moved then to, uh, later moved to Great Yarmouth by the seaside because her husband was appointed curate, or curate, I pronounce it. I've heard it, I just don't know how you say it. Yeah, these one of those words you just read. Yeah. And then three more kids have died. So I think we're now down to four, oh. if my maths is correct. 
happens at this time, don't they? Yeah, all of tuberculosis. Yeah. Yeah. Big. It's awful. And then her husband died as well, like, around the same time. But she still had some kids left. She had four kids left, yeah. But, I mean, Not a lonely life, then. <laughs> six of her kids had died, and her husband has died. Mm, yeah. I mean, death was more commonplace. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was like, okay, though. <laughs> I know, so that's why they had so many kids. Yeah, yeah, true. And also the lack of contraception. So then when uh, she was also now in 1806, so now we're into the 19th century, she went to live with her oldest son uh, in Gloucestershire, um, and she then died there living with him a year later on July 3rd. But then after she'd died, um, her her novels were republished. So as well as then another novel that she'd been working on and that she'd left with her son so that he would publish it after she died, which was called uh, The Wife. And that's it. And that, that, then I think The Wife is like one of her most famous um, texts. It's the one that was then published after she died. I wonder if it inspired the film. No, but the film was also based on a book. That's what I was thinking. I was oh. like, I definitely is heard of that yeah the, and then i've not heard of her name so it's like probably not her no because obviously the wife of the film is set kind of is it 95 something set that. yeah not a lot of information because there's just very little about her yeah you'll find that with women in this time there isn't. No. I mean, m- women in all times. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. Which is really sad. Mm-hmm. And as well, especially within literature, because the canon is predominantly men. Yeah. I mean, nowadays we're breaking that down, but yeah, still, like in schools and like say you know, you know, depending on university modules and stuff, mm-hmm. you will find usually it's just men. Old and white. Yeah, we were discussing like remember in the so in the first was it lecture I think we uh, seminar that we had um, all of us um, Mm -hmm. uh, lecturer asked us to like come up with canon writers Mm. or like and she did uh, she was like really testing to see about like the diversity that we had within like the names that we were suggesting and Mm. she was like there are some female names there so that's quite good but then it's still. You know, she she would then ask, you know, when did you, how do you know these people? Yeah. Is it is it from your is it from school? Yeah. Is it from A level or is it from your own mm-hmm. kind of reading? And then you will find that if it's your own reading, usually that's when you'll start going into women. And, yeah, and I their you literature. Look for it more yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like a legal requirement in this country. Is it? You don't know what I'm going to say. Wait. Yeah, wait, I was going to say to the. No, that you you have to learn Shakespeare. Oh yes, oh, I yes, yes. Yeah, but that's a man. You don't have a woman who they're saying. I thought you were going to say it was a legal requirement. You had to study so many women. No, but if you actually, I wish. If, yeah. if we all actually sat here now and and talked about what GCSE texts we did yeah. within literature, I think mine were all men. Mine were all men. Mine were all men. Except for poetry, I did GCSE. That was quite mixed. Yeah, poetry. I guess. Yeah, because we had a, right. we had a lot of Rossetti reset, and stuff, so yeah. you kind of go into it more with poetry. But apart from that, mm. oh man. It was even because um, my sister's doing her GCSEs at the moment, and mm. I was going through like, the poems that she's had to learn, and I was like, so it's a lot of women. She was like, there's, there's quite a few, I think there's like three that she has to do. I was like, cool, how many people are there who aren't white? And she was like, there's one. And I was like, yep, 
that's to his best. I think he had to learn like 12 or so. Yeah. And then again, it's just, I know they're trying, but I'm just like, there's so much more. Yeah, and I think that's sad for me because I, I want to go into it, mm-hmm. into teaching, especially literature. It's, it is going to annoy me a lot. And I, I always think, I hope, I hope the schools, whichever school, gives me kind of that freedom to decide. Yeah. I know there's a curriculum, in, but then also a lot of schools sometimes it will give the teacher the freedom to decide on what text they want to teach, you know, what they feel most comfortable with. Yeah. And that's something I'd, I'd definitely look out for mm-hmm. to see definitely kind of... Definitely get the bronzes in there. Yeah, well, <laughs> even, yeah, and, but, even, but even even so, like, you know, you know, um, writers of colour and stuff, like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'd, I'd love to, to, to bring that in as well. Mm-hmm. So... I didn't know anything about Shakespeare, though. You didn't? No. Well, you... That, yeah, I think that annoys me. Yeah, because yeah. I hate Shakespeare. <laughs> As do most people. And yeah. the thing is, with Shakespeare, it's not, you hate, it's not that you hate Shakespeare. It's that you hate how you were forced to read about Shakespeare. Yeah. And in the context, if you and usually at school they'll they'll teach you the most depressing of the Shakespeare plays, and it'll usually be a really boring history of his mm-hmm. or his tragedies, usually Romeo and Juliet. Juliet, sorry. And then you miss all the fun ones. I mean, some schools, I guess, do do the fun ones, but I, I didn't. And when I come to uni, I, I, I ask people what Shakespeare they've, they've read, and, and they tell me, like, if they've read, like, a Midsummer Night's Dream, I get so jealous. I'm like, why do I have to yeah. do Romeo and Juliet and King Lear and all that crap? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's why people don't like Shakespeare, yeah. because if you actually... It's, 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 the, it's, a, it's being forced to read Shakespeare. And the... I mean, I appreciate very good writer of his time kind of thing Completely. but I do feel like I mean he was basically like a historical fuckboy yeah. and yet we're meant to read him as though he's like this grand master of lyricists oh, yeah. Like, yeah but he was also like joking about like dicks yeah. you know someone told me once that yeah so it's true that Shakespeare was actually a woman I was like no that's St Trinian's too yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought I was like that's definitely St Trinian I was just thinking um, I do, like, there's a lot of theories that Shakespeare was more than one person. I like that which, theory. Which I do like quite like the theory, it does fit, but yeah, as a woman it's, it's just different. Mm. Yeah. I had an idea for a story that was, it was about like in Shakespeare's mind, and that it was the concept that you don't, like you, once you die you go to a place, and then you stay in that place until people stop saying your name, and so Shakespeare That's was just, mm-hmm. what? Carry on. This is completely unoriginal, probably. <laughs> but then Shakespeare was just like there, really annoyed that everyone kept talking about him. He didn't even write like half of his stuff. Yeah, I've heard a lot of it. A lot. Yeah, he didn't actually write that. Well, he did, but he didn't write as much as we think. Well, I don't know. I'm going to say he's got like fifty. Was it hundred? I don't know. I remember at school they did tell us how many. He actually does have mm-hmm. within his like bibliography. And it's almost saying like he does have published like so many a year. It's like it's just yeah, like, I think it's thirty something plays. Yeah, um, but a few are lost. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you've seen the film Coco, right? Is that in that? Well, that I mean, it's part of like Mexican culture. Yeah, it's but like, I came up with it years ago, so I'm ahead. Of Mexican culture. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, the whole thing about like, like when you start celebrating them and you don't put the picture on your phone anymore, then they they go to the oh, I just don't forget the words like the place where you are then truly dead. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and that's why they do it every year they commemorate the. Yeah, they have the big um, festival though. Yeah, the Dia de la Muerte. Mm. 
No, you go. I'll go last. Yeah. My person is. I am going to very badly pronounce this, so I apologise to. I'm looking forward to this. It's um, Fukuda Shioni. Or it could be pronounced Kaga no Shio. Okay. She's was a Japanese poet mm-hmm. from the Edo period, which is also known as the Tokugawa period, which was like a time in Japan where there was like lots of economic growth and it was very popular, like arts and cultures and like a strict social order. She's like regarded as one of the greatest poets of the haiku. Whoa. Oh really? Yeah, and it it was called then the Hoku Haku. Mm-hmm. But her best works include The Morning Glory, Potting Up My Hair and Again the Women. And I'm gonna do a dramatic reading of Morning Obviously. Glory. I'm quite excited. And it's a haiku, so okay. it's three lines. Oh, <laughs> this, this is what I mean, yeah. yeah. Just oh and morning glory refers to the shower. Not the shower. The <laughs> I mean I hope it's not the morning glory I'm thinking about. <laughs> Brilliant. Flower. Mm-hmm. Say very progressive for her time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's morning glory, the well bucket entangled. I ask for water. Whoa. That's powerful. That three lines. I always, I always think that poetry sometimes doesn't need to be. Yeah. Twenty pages. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just, just a couple of lines and, and you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head right there. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> she was born in Mato, in the Kagawa, Kaga province, mm-hmm. which is now the Hakusan Ishigawa Prefecture. Okay. I don't know, it might make sense to a Japanese person. She was born in February 1703. And she was an old, the eldest daughter of a scroll mounter. So, you know, like, the, the like, tr- Japanese scrolls where they do the calligraphy and yeah. the uh-huh. drawings and stuff. One of that. Oh, so he did the he actual... Did them, yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So, she was introduced to art and poetry from quite a young age. Mm-hmm. And then she started writing, like, haiku poetry at the age of seven. Seven? Seven. And by the age of 17, she'd become very popular all over Japan, which, impressive. I feel the love of the 10 years, yeah. <laughs> I know. And her poems are mostly about nature and, like, the unity of the, like, humanity and nature. And, like, mm-hmm. being one with the, with the world. Mm-hmm. And she was part, I think it was, it's a group of poets... It was called the Haikai, mm-hmm. which I think they had a specific style. Oh no, they, they followed, yeah, they made the, like, their lives with one, with the, the nature. That's okay. what they did. So they were like focusing on that, that kind of... Yeah. Yeah. So she had like a very simple and humble life, because that's what they did in that group of poets. But she was like able to make connections from the nature and just like unique things from it and write it down. Mm-hmm. I guess that's just what any writer does, but it's what I found. <laughs> and so at age 12, she studied under two haiku poets who, I know. <laughs> that seems 
like, like a mentoring kind of thing. Yeah. Like a specific area at 12. Mm. Yeah. Like coming to university at 12, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, mm. some people do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> they apprenticed with the great poet Matsuo Basho, mm-hmm. which she is considered like one of his true heirs, or like one of the most his most famous heirs, because mm-hmm. she sort of adapted his style, but like then made her own way of it. Like, yeah. broke off, mm-hmm. but it was still the style. Yeah, she, so she'd already studied the Basho's style of poets, like in early life. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how she developed her own voice. But she did develop the independent voice, yeah. is what I tried to just say. Yeah. <laughs> and she wrote a poem about the fact that she'd used him as like a reference to Star, but also that she didn't copy him. Which, the last two lines... That, I mean, I could have found the first, but it wasn't that. Um, it's like, not to listen, fine to. Not to listen? Fine to. Fine to. This might not translate well. Okay. I don't, I don't know. But then in 1720, mm-hmm. she married a servant of the Fukuoka family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had one child. And he died in infancy. Oh, nice. What year was she? Born? 1703. So she was 17. Oh my god, so she had a child. She was at the height of her poetry career. Yeah. (laughs) All in the same year. Talk about peaking. I would say. Yeah. (laughs) Then in 1722, her husband died of a disease. Oh my god. Yeah, and she never remarried after that because she valued her independence too much. Mm. And like, (laughs) <laughs> she was she was lonely but she just returned to her parents and looked after them what? Oh. she like worked for the squirrel mounting business yeah. with her father so she stopped then I think she still write, wrote right. but then once her parents died she found a married couple who could take on the family business in 1754 she was 52 at this point, mm-hmm. um, and sort of, I'm not sure if she sold to them or gave it to them, okay. it doesn't say, but let them, like, carry on, and then she become a Buddhist nun. Oh my gosh! I know, <laughs> and she wrote that it was because, it was not to renounce the world, but as a way to teach her heart to be like the clear water which flows night and day. She's returning back to that nature. Yeah. That's quite lovely, actually. Mm-hmm. Was that a quote from a poem? Or was that, that like... That's what she said. Quote? I'm not actually... Because if it's in a poem, I'd be like, oh, it's really you know, nice. Yeah. You know if someone just said that to me in person, I'd just be like, oh, <laughs> just what? <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real for a minute. Like, kind of Can't you just say, you just feel like it? Yeah, I always find that, especially within um, university and you'll be sat and someone's trying to talk about something like say yeah. they're, they're answering a question and they're answering it like they're writing some sort of novel yeah yeah and it's from a different time period yeah. and you have no idea and at the end you're just like and I got none of that yeah because they're just like it's like they're almost battling with the lecturer to be more like 
educated and yeah. it's like well, you, you're here to get educated like let's and we are too so can you yeah. be on our level <laughs> and a lot of the time it's like they'll say the same thing that the lecture's trying to say but they they do they it just say it in more words yeah and they make it like more flowery don't yeah. they you're like yeah. What's amusing is when you can tell the lecturer's face gradually drop as they're just like, yeah, oh. yeah okay, fair enough. When it's the win. same person every week and you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry for that person. <laughs> sorry, no names are mentioned. No. No. So she shaved her head and then, because she's a nun. Oh, I've, I they've never shaved their heads. I just thought they, well, I don't know what Japanese nuns look like. They're Buddhist. Oh, so would they be like monks? Oh. Well, she's a nun. I don't know. Is that is that like is that just the the gendered marker? So is it like Possibly. I suppose because in this culture we have a nun and a, a specific image denotes that nun, mm. whereas in other cultures yeah the same maybe I'm, I'm not really yeah, yeah. I do okay fair enough okay <laughs> yeah and then she was living in the temple with the other nuns mm-hmm. and she took the Buddhist name Soen okay and she kept writing for the rest of her life she had like very peaceful and simple life, just like the, the Haikai tradition. And then in 1764, she was chosen to prepare the official gift for Maida Shikamichi, mm-hmm. who was, uh, I think, a famous samurai. And he was also like a daimyo, which is like, I think, a lord or leader of a specific section of Japan, where she was. And so she like crafted and made uh, 21 artworks based on her haikus. Oh my god. For him. It's very nice. Yeah. Impressive. Mm-hmm. And then her like memory as a whole is because she's one of the few women haiku poets in pre-modern Japanese literature. Mm-hmm. She, she's like seen as a very influential figure and mostly before her time, haikus that were written by women were forgotten or ignored. Shocking. Yep. It'd be interesting to know if maybe in Japanese school that they uh, taught about her. I yeah. really hope they do. Yeah, and like they, they, that's their literature. Mm-hmm. And they go maybe back to her, that would be nice to know. Yeah. I mean, obviously we probably don't know, but it would be nice mm-hmm. to know. Yeah. Her, her dedication uh, towards her own career rather than like getting a husband and stuff mm-hmm. is considered to be like paving the way for more women in literature oh. that came after her and she's seen as a forerunner who she encouraged like international cu- cultural exchanges oh. I don't know how but that's what it says and then she died in 1775 because she was like was she written yeah. in the 18th yeah. century? Yeah. And, and she had a long life. Yeah, Because a lot of people didn't at this time. Yeah. Mm. So. Yeah. That's Fukuda Shion. Ooh. You've taught me a lot there. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I feel like I neglect kind of that kind of Asian um, kind of mm. culture, especially yeah. like, like say, literature and I think history. There is, there is obviously parts of the history that um, you know I've, I've, I know about, but there's a lot of stuff you, that you yeah. do ignore, don't you? Well, there's also an issue with translation, I think, because Massively, yeah. some things are lost in translation, which Most is funny because yeah. the film is set in Japan. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. I've never watched it. It's on my list. 
watch it. And it's like, because I find translation very fascinating because they're interpreting it, but they're also like sort of writing it, yeah. but they're not. So I think it only works best when they're in contact with the author. Yeah, yeah. no, I agree. Yeah. 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 Um, translate things now would be, like you say, definitely the translators kind of way that they're they like how what feelings they get and kind of how they want it to be like on the page yeah because yeah. i know um obviously i've been like doing some work with um like interpreters of being sound things like that british sign language um and um one of the main things that they will teach you if you're going to be interpreting someone is that you have a like an hour's meeting if just that like at, at minimum an hour's meeting with the person you interpret for beforehand so you can go oh, over yeah. exactly what they want to convey and what you're going to be saying so it's like you do need that kind of yeah. contextual understanding of what mm. they're going to be talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. Cool. Should we have an ad break? Yes, we and shall. We and we shall be back promptly. Yep. We are Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Plyme and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system or shark's digestive systems or how many priests are necessary for an exorcism or the guillotine or how much milk can fit in a shopping cart or how to cook dicks or what it means when your nose itches or penguins or why it's called Scotland Yard or proper body disposal or sentencing or how to make it through an entire episode without saying God. How big does a rock have to be to be a boulder? Or geography. Or whether stingrays have teeth. Or crime in Minnesota. Or how medical parole works. Or why people text their crimes to each other. Or the hierarchy of cops. Or what a paper grabber is. Anything about an Alfred plea. The security at Buckingham Palace. If warrants expire. How to start a fire. How much drugs cost. If ducks would make good guard animals. Whether priests have to tell the police about crimes they are aware of and maybe even involved in. Pink stun guns. How much is 11 pounds of cocaine worth? The mechanics of hanging. What happened to Carla Homolka after her release? How to make a car fly. The colonial parkway killer. The swans migrate. Marital property laws in Florida. If horses can throw up. Do crocodiles hire me? What animals can get drunk? How do you get stuck in window? Sharks live. International flight security. How do you get a typewriter into your prison cell? Well, you shouldn't bring a robbery. But. We're still crazy for a good true crime story. If you don't know anything about these things either, you should come listen to Crime Crazy. Diana, do you have any advice for us? Yeah, you should subscribe to Crime Crazy. You can find us on iTunes or Google Play or Podbean or your podcast catcher of choice. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WordPress, Facebook, Gmail, or Facebook. Call your people. Yes, call your people. And don't end up on next week's episode. Welcome back, so dinner viewers. Yes, so my woman in literature is Lady Mary Wortley or Wortley, I think I'm going to say Wortley, mm-hmm. Montague. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I think I, I heard that. You would have. I was looking. You definitely would have. Ah. So she was born in 1689 and she was called, she was born as Lady Mary Pierre Pont, P- Pierre Pont, a word I cannot say, that is what she was born. Uh, so she's an, as by her name, she's an English aristocrat and she's famously known for writing letters. Oh. Um, yeah, and she was a poet and she was very literate. She, you know, knew, she learned and taught herself Latin Whoa. Yeah, so this was a reaction from women at this time not being um, allowed a formal education, mm-hmm. and she kind of detested that. So instead of, you know, 
just going along being all friendly with her governess. She hated her governess and she locked herself in rooms and would just go in her dad's library and she'd, you know, learn to teach herself Latin and then like, you know, read all these novels that I mean, don't, would... don't we all do yeah. my form of rebellion. Yeah. Definitely. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, we do. Unless it's Jane, unless it's Jane Eyre, and then we really love our governesses. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so she's um now she's known for writing a lot of like satirical um poetry and like epistle kind of poets and verses. Mm-hmm. She responded to a lot of events and like public opinions at the time. So a lot of her letters would be defending women's right to education. However, she didn't speak about a universal right. She spoke oh. more about her, her being on the same level as men of her class. So, yeah. but then, it, yeah, very classist, and especially because she was from like the aristocracy. You know, she saw probably only you at that time. You only really saw that side of society, and so I guess as much as she wanted women to have a formal education I guess she didn't really protest for anything further than her own class Mm -hmm. but at that time I guess maybe she did and we don't really know but I don't I don't think I don't think she did well it says she didn't so I don't know what year she married but she did marry the British Turkish ambassador yeah Yeah, and she um, and he was a Whig MP called Edward Watley Montague. Do we need to explain what Whig is, just in case people don't know? So yeah, Whig is a political pa- was was a political <laughs> party in it was actually one of the first political parties in the UK. In the 18th century, we had predominantly a two-party system within the Tories, which is now known as the Conservative Party, but it is very loosely connected. Yeah. Um, and then the Whigs. Which a lot of people now like to say it's like more of a democratic pie, but it's again very loosely connected. Mm-hmm. And at, obviously at this time we can't really, we can't really apply them to politics today because the politi- is completely different politics. Yeah, yeah. Like you just can't. So there's no there's no comparing the Whig the Whig parties to anything. I mean, was that yeah. during a time when um, you had to be of a certain kind of status to vote? Oh yeah. So, so there was massive restrictions on voting yeah. rights, and there was I think nobody represented. Yeah. Yeah, so this is in this is in Britain. So as we all know, women didn't get the vote until nineteen eighteen, and even then it was quite limited. Mm -hmm. Men didn't. Men did, but obviously it it was all on land. So if you owned land, if you was a landlord, it was and and like sometimes it would even be on income, your income a year. So yeah, it was at this time very limited representation. So so the Whigs they were they were um, favoured constitutional monarchy. So you know they 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 saw the monarch and then but then and they also saw that the monarch can't have all the power yeah. because as we know sometimes that doesn't work. When did it change? Like I'm... I don't know. No, no, sorry. No. Um, I don't know exactly, but I know that we had Parliament in like the sixteen hundreds. So Parliament's been around for a long time. But our first Prime Minister was Walpole, but I forgot mm-hmm. his first name. Um, it was Horace Walpole's dad. Uh, Robert Walpole oh. was the first Prime Minister, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that wasn't, that was only in the 1700s. No, or maybe the 1600s, I don't know. I mean, uh, 1600s. Uh, tried to pull up Parliament in like 
Like yeah, it must have been before that then. Yeah, but then I don't know if we had if it was like um if it was a they wasn't really called prime ministers. That's what I think that's the thing that there was there was people of power, but then the, I don't think the actual label of prime minister mm-hmm. was came until a little bit later. But we've had parliament for a little while, I yeah. think. It's quite strange though because like with America, we know a lot of about their like old presidents. Mm. Yeah. But with regards to our prime ministers, I think I could name five yeah but when was their first president it was around this time ours was obviously a yeah. lot further back yeah. america we don't really americans history is relatively new it's quite new yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. especially like you've got 19th century i think there's the, the obviously with the slave slave trade and all that like lincoln that's like the, the where i think for me that's kind of where my knowledge comes in yeah and then um, and then it gets obviously a lot greater in well, the 20th yeah, century yeah yeah but yeah, it's interesting. So because like, because um, at the moment I'm kind of bit reading about like, the original um, American kind of history that they have, and it, it literally yeah. it it's very very limited. They're just like guessing most of the things, and it's very white, and it's very it just kind of really fucks me off basically. It, but American history, especially with the like the frontier, yeah. is so annoying. Yeah. Because it'll especially especially from an English perspective because we if we taught it in schools with you know we are English mm-hmm. the English people went over there yeah we are almost seen as like some sort of civil society that then makes them like goes and like gets makes the natives like more civilized when that's just, just not the case they're already civilized and you just came and you just make them capitalists yeah and yeah. just <laughs> fucked America really I mean yeah. I mean it's a great nation but Fucked. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I hope there's Americans that know that's really horrible. No. <laughs> but, but there's that, that's, again, like we were saying earlier about literature, that's a part of history that schools and especially British schools and places in England need to probably scrub up, scrub up, scrub yeah. up on again. Like you go back to your history, GCSE, or even before that, you you know, when you're, in, when you're a little kid, you do. Egyptians because it's fun yeah. and it's easy to do and you do like hieroglyphics because you don't write your name in hieroglyphics it's all really fun and then you get to GC and it get, you get to maybe like Second World War because we all have to learn about that it seems <laughs> to be maybe that's like Shakespeare is that in the yeah. <laughs> um, and then and then there's like a big chunk missing and usually yeah. it's it's anything but but Britain like you yeah. can't get away from our our involvement so especially like with America mm-hmm. there is a lot Although we were there because we founded it, yeah. there's a lot behind that that we we don't see. That see, is annoying. Like, taught in like chunks, if you mm. know what I mean. You do this chunk and then you do this chunk, and they they never like intermingle mm. them at all. No. So you learn about this bit of America and this bit of English culture, mm. but you you never like see the links no. between them all. The yeah. impacts that they have. So yeah, that's, yeah. That's, I know, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I forgot where I was. So yeah, she. So that, well, I was explaining wig. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Just a political party at this time, by the mm-hmm. way. At this time, most prime ministers would have been Whigs. Anyway, so he was an MP and obviously the Turkish ambassador. This is very random, but is that where Whigs come from? The like term Whigs for the hair come from? I'm not because sure. They wore it in like Parliament or like they in legal. Didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Has it got something to do with that? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I only know it for the. I'm going to politics maybe it's a google kind of thing yeah so yeah she they had a child and they moved to turkey 
what is now called Istanbul, I don't actually know what it was called at the time, and um, Constantinople, Constantinople, there you go, yeah, yeah, well she, um, so yeah, they went there, and um, while she was over there, she saw a doctor do the um, immunisation of smallpox, and it was starting to kind of um, spread over the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So when she she got her son um, vaccinated at the time, yes. and then she brought it over to <laughs> so yeah, so she she brought it over to um, England. And as much Whoa. as people who who was the person I, anyway, so there's a, there's a man who's known for the the spread of the immunisation, but she she kind of was one of the first people to actually go over and see its magic and and, and vaccinate her child. Pre- so preach. Preach, Honestly. yeah. So as much as she's a literary figure, she's also got a bit of that medical history there. Yeah. And so I chose Lady Mary Wetley Montague because of I, I've studied her and oh. she is yeah, I studied her and she is hilarious. And she has very biting kind of satire poetry and she responded a lot to her male contemporaries at the time. I love it. Edward Jenner. Edward Jenner. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Edward Jenner, by the way. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, and I, I don't know. So, do you know Jonathan Swift? He did yeah. um, Gulliver's Travels yeah. and stuff. Very, he was known as like a libertine. So, you know. Yeah you know, moving away from sexual norms at the time and kind of being a bit rebellious. It came with kind of like Charles II and stuff and how, you know, when the monarchy was kind of brought back. Um, (laughs) All that jazz. Early form of anarchy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He wrote a poem called The Ladies' Dressing Room and it's about a man who goes into this woman's dressing room. We assume that she might be a prostitute or a performer of some kind and when he goes into a dressing room he kind of picks out all the the bits of it that you wouldn't necessarily look at so he goes over to a hairbrush and you start seeing seeing all these wiry hairs on a hairbrush he'll he sees all this like makeup but it's all like dirty and stuff and then right at the climax which is actually right at the end he kind of goes into her wardrobe mm-hmm. or like closet and he finds this box and he calls it her Pandora's box and once he opens it he finds it's actually her chamber pot and there's a big there's a massive part in the there's a massive yeah yeah there's a big part in the in the poem that says and she's called Celia this woman mm-hmm. and he says Celia 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 shits that's what he says, and, and he's he's absolutely he's absolutely gobsmacked. He can't believe that this woman that you know he felt like he might have had some sort of sexual relations with, he, she shits, and then he's put off. He's put off, and he runs away. I mean, women. Yeah. Using the toilet. Yes. Why did no one tell me this? Like, yeah, I had, I had no idea, and he has no idea. But the, the poem's clever because as much as you you read it and you think, oh my god, Swift, you are stupid. But then it's written really, it's written from like a third person. Mm-hmm. So you see the narrator assume that's Swift. So there's an I in there mm-hmm. in the poem. Look it up. I'm not going to read it. Out. It's a long, 
a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of them are long. A lot of 18th century yeah. poetry is long, so I apologise. It's not like the how do you say it again? Haiku. Haiku. Not like the haiku, which I wish it was. Um, so, so yeah, and he and he. Um, so there's an eye in there, and then there's Strephon, who is the guy who's looking around the dressing room, mm-hmm. um, and then there's kind of like um, so you so there's like a, there's like a first person because you see Strephon looking at the images, but then you also see this eye, and it's almost like the eye is mocking Strephon for for also almost being so disgusted that women excrement. But yeah, so it's really it's really funny because you don't know who to blame in that moment. Is is it is Swift doing a sat a satire on men, or is he doing a satire on women? Like that we mean weird. don't yeah it's it's a it's a it's a poem that is interesting to look at actually. It's a societal one, like the fact that that we create well they we they've created a shame over it. It's like it's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Why is one allowed and the other is not? No, completely. So, Lady Mary Wortley Montague replied to Swift in her poem the reasons that induced Doctor S Swift uh, to write a poem called The Ladies Dressing Room. And within it, she kind of, you know, she talks about how maybe this whole poem's not nothing to do with um, women and how women can't, women, you know, they excrete and they're not grim, but they have features about them which maybe are not, not what men not, thought yeah. they were. She uses that against Swift and says maybe, maybe it's maybe it's not women that are problem. Maybe it's you and, and your sexual failures in life. It's really interesting. She, you know, and it, really come out it's, it, So yeah. it's like because because a lot of people have said, especially this poem, kind of address how Swift was maybe it's an, it's an attack on women because maybe women didn't really like him that much and maybe they rejected him and maybe that's why you're now picking a, a part. It's like when it's like anyone like if you get rejected, you'll go oh well. They were ugly anyway. Do you know that kind of thing? It's awful. And so at the end of the poem, she writes, She answered short, I'm glad you're right. You'll furnish paper when I shite. Um, so I thought that was a, a great end. And like I say, it's, it's really interesting to see women kind of replying to men and men's perceptions of women at the time and kind of giving women that, that voice. Oh, Sadly, it's a voice of a woman who doesn't really represent everyone. Yeah. Um, and I guess at this time, it's it, it's probably difficult to find women who do kind of represent lower classes and mm-hmm. people who, um, you know, don't have the same kind of standings um, in society. So I, I, I picked um, her as well because she, she had a few kind of disagreements within the kind of poetry scene a lot of people call it the poetic warfare. Famously, she had a relation, like not a relationship, but she had some sort of friendship with Alexander Pope. Oh. Um, and if we've ever read Pope, he's very, he almost comes across quite an emotional and very heartfelt man. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote her a lot of like letters and they were quite flirty and kind of, you know, loving and stuff. And um, she publicly kind of um, laughed at his love for her. Pope is known for having quite like a hunchback. He was not a very handsome man, so they had a big falling out over this. Their kind of relationship was also um, kind of under scrutiny. She she also kind of outed him a lot in um, the poetic circles. So um, oh, she, just came at everybody. she did. She was just like, right, I don't agree with this. So and I you know it's it's good in some way because why not have a woman actually give her opinion on the matter and um, yeah. a lot of these men their poetry were were kind of um 
about women and how women are and their desires for women and how women desired them and it's like it's just a bit one-sided yeah um but above all Eighteenth-century literature, especially at this time when she was writing, which was like mid, well, early seventeen hundreds to about mid seventeen hundreds, she, you know, is is the, is the prime time for um, satire and a lot of kind of, well, not battles, but like a, a bit of like, re, re, like conversations responding to each other, and yeah. Also, she is one of the only women of the eighteenth century to have her own kind of volume of text and her own kind of bibliography. Um, yeah, a lot. There isn't really any women who would like. There were some women, and I'd have like maybe one or two poems or one or two texts. But she actually has like you can find like her 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 book, like her um, you know like her like like the works of Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Like you can actually find her own like her works. So she has her own bibliography. So she was um, known for writing a lot of embassy letters when she was obviously in in Turkey, and they're really important for historians to even to this day. They wanted to learn about the Ottoman Empire at that time from like a British perspective. So yeah, but um, again, she she's a woman who, although we might have heard of her, she's not really spoke spoken about that much. And no. when you do discuss eighteenth century, she's 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 not really at the forefront. Um, you will still find it being Pope and Swift, I that kind of yeah. Um, so yeah, so she's kind of lost a bit, but um, she's interesting to um, read about and I, I want to kind of read more of her stuff she's very you know standing up for women at this time especially when there's a lot of men who are assuming women's roles and and things like that so yeah she's a bit like the Lena Dunham she time. is she does yes I'm feeling that a bit of a Lena Dunham yeah oh no no that, that's that, that's as much as I have for her yeah I don't really have much about her else yeah I, I have a lot. You, um, oh, it's, it's you did your, uh, your, your, you did it on paper. We don't do it on paper. That's what I meant. No, I, I was just, because I, I didn't have a laptop with me when I was doing a bit oh, of research the other day, and I was like, oh, I just got like a web page up, and I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to write some stuff down. So, um, yeah, I wrote some stuff down, and I did, I printed out a poem. I mean, I'm really, you know, I think I'm more prepared than I was for most of my lectures and <laughs> seminars for this whole semester. Well, um, I'm honoured that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. This is a period of literature that a lot of people don't really like. Say, and I know I'm the only person out of our friends who chose to study it. And it, it, a lot of people, you know, like say they run away from it. If anything, yeah. they'll go to 20th century, 21st century. Sorry, no 20th century. <laughs> no, I I wish I did 20th century. 20th century is 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 a great a great period of um, literature, but. Sometimes we forget what came before, and I think we do. Yeah. And, and and it is also as much as you know, it's it's very white and it's men and it's and the roles and the talk about women in a derogatory way. It's still really relevant, relevant. and yeah. it's interesting to even to know kind of what was said and and kind of what wasn't said and in all the context behind um, literature at the time. Yeah, it feels like there was like a massive gap, you know, between massive, you yeah. have the, the original work, so of language and discovery at all, and then there's just this gap where you get one or two notable texts, and then obviously it's like 20th century onwards. Yeah. Or right, 19th century onwards. Yeah. I think you get into, at the end of this period, obviously, we get, we get big female kind of um, 
figures coming through. So we get like Francis Burney. We'll get. She did, and then straight after that we'll get we'll get Jane Austen, and then after that we'll get like the Brontes, and then we'll get who else we get we get um yeah all oh, the other ones I can't think of which I have I've, I've actually read a lot of them as well um, yeah when I'm not here and I don't have a list yeah. I'm like, I've read so much but I can't but think but then let's say so you know women although are not represented at this time. We see them coming coming through later on, yeah, yeah. which is is great. So it's quite nice now that we're discovering that we, we're not discovering, but they, we're recognising that they've just been lost, and going back and trying to bring them back, if you know what I mean, mm. to study them now, yeah, to make them more relevant. Mm. Um, well, it, it could be quite interesting, like I don't know, twenty years, and they rediscover a bunch of female writers from this time, yeah, earlier. Well, a lot of, like I say, a lot of it was lost, and um, I think um, Lady Mary Wortley Montagues, a lot of her stuff was burnt by like a her daughter. I think burnt her diaries. Wow. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of things like maybe they don't. They don't want like publicity, and like you don't know like kind of what it is do you really? Yeah. At this time, there isn't any tabloids to to even um, to address the subject. So. Um, it's all speculative, isn't it? Really, so you don't really know. Like, say, a lot of people they they do burn stuff, and as well, like, it depends on what the person. A lot of times, children can be linked to their families, and then you're like, but it's not them, and then and then there's reputations and stuff. So at this time, like, say, if you entered into some sort of political warfare or even poetic warfare, you know, it'll always come back and you know bite the kids on the ass, and yeah. and then you've got that name yeah. kind of stamped on you. So I don't know if it was that. Uh, yeah. Um, obviously his history, the Cumberbatch family. Am I pronouncing that right? Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. Yeah, the Cumberbatch family, obviously, um, were kind of known slave owners. So when he was then like auditioning and kind of coming into it, his family said, maybe drop the name. And he was like, well, no, because that was them who me who changed. So is that, do you think that's why he took the role in 12 Years a Slave? Yeah, he said that was like, he felt it was a dupe, like a moral kind of what to, to be a nicer slaver because he was, he was quite a, he was a, the nicer yeah. of the slaver or just slaver to like recognise it you know what I mean and okay. not like be like it didn't happen because it did happen it did and he's like I acknowledge it it did happen if you know what I mean but I hope that by acknowledging it you realise that it's not the same the family's moved up which is it's quite big well yeah, but, I, yeah I always think that like Oh, this is oh I don't I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna say it. it's fine I'm leaving it I'm leaving it there's so much I could say I'm yeah. not gonna say it um, and it's probably not something you want on your podcast so but like then what I was gonna say is there's a lot of historical figures and you'd get their grandsons and grandkids and you know do we do we do we kind of put their 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 parents or their you know their um family's wrongdoings onto them no. probably no no. If they were to turn, to me at least, it kind of seems like if they were to turn around and completely exonerate their ancestors for what they did, it's like, well, then there's an issue. I mean, if you're saying, well, it's, you know, there was no issue, it's like, well, there was. Yeah. It, we're not going to tie it onto you because no. there, there was something wrong. There. Yeah, mm-hmm. completely. It's like holding your grandparents responsible when they say, like, offensive things. <laughs> I know, yeah, I always say that, because, like, yeah. Yeah, I try, I try and I try and put myself in their shoes, and then I'm like, I don't want to be in their shoes. Get me away from them. <laughs> so, like, no, they were too uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> and a different, a different size. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, thank you so much for having me on. No, thank you for for coming in and sharing your story. Yes. Yeah. And uh, thank you for listening. Yes. Please. Please.
Oh, any questions? I'd like questions. If there's any questions, yeah. like you can send you them and then I can answer. I'm, I'm very limited. My knowledge is limited, though. Like you say that, but it is broad. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah.